I felt a little lopsided in my sitting this morning. <laughs> Wanted to, re- to reiterate uh, some of the things that Malia said last night in terms of uh, just the special feeling of this retreat. It's really uh, quite extraordinary. When we first talked about doing this together, uh, we didn't really know each other that well and didn't have any particular idea of how it was going to unfold. It's just something we thought would be fun to do together. And it's been amazing to me to see how beautifully the unfolding has happened. And uh, It's so rare you know, to find somebody with an alias combination of profound and brilliant scholarship and the depth of his meditation practice. So it's been hugely inspiring and I think we've all learned a lot. So I'm very appreciative of how it just all unfolded together. And it was striking to me just the stillness in the hall you know, in the sittings, when we've been sitting together, uh, just as a testament to your own practice, it's, it's great. Uh, so just a couple of things before we open it for some questions. First to say that, uh, as you know, Analio is working, will be working on a book, about the instructions and the evening presentations, uh, which will come out uh, probably sometime next year. And he said that he will, as part of that, make a CD of the guided meditations, you know, that go along with it, because as we know, they were all, they were so powerful. Uh, so that's all, that's all in the works. Uh, Everything that I offered in the hall will be on Dharma Seed. It will probably be uh, under the code just for these retreatants. So if, if you're interested in getting any of that, just check the code on the bulletin board. Analia's schedule over the next years, he's committed to coming back to the study center just down the road uh, every year at the end of March for a, about a week course, I guess. And then he'll be alternating uh, between here and Spirit Rock with a retreat like this. It may be maybe nine or ten days instead of two weeks. But uh, so next year after the study center, he'll be uh, teaching at Spirit Rock, and then in 2016 after the center, he'll be back here again. Um, he said the best way to kind of keep track of you know, where, where he is and his endless list of publications <laughs> uh, is just, uh, you know, typing in his name and under Wikipedia, that that, that, uh, that has everything, you know, that he's been doing. He said that's the best place to uh, make connection. That's all the announcements. Any questions? Analia's teaching schedule elsewhere in the world, like in Europe. I think the Wikipedia is the place to go. Okay, thank you. And uh, when Venomalalio teaches at Spirit Rock next year, will you teach with him? Uh, n- no. Uh, do we know who's teaching with him? Philip, Philip Moffat. Okay, thank you. And who? Shyla. And Charla Catherine. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I uh, wanted to 
I wanted to ask about the hindrance of doubt. Um, in the Satipatthana, the antidote is investigation. Sometimes it feels like the mind is not up to investigation. It doesn't have the cognitive capacity. Mm -hmm. The fog is too much. So I was wondering when, what other antidotes there are to doubt in other sutras and other mm -hmm. parts of the teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not sure of the sutta references for all this, uh, but just from my experience in working with the practice, uh, I think there are two basic approaches other than the investigation. One is to realize that doubt itself can become the object of meditation. So you're taking this whole mind state, stepping back from the mind state and recognizing this is doubt. Sometimes it's doubt is a kind of confused, fog-like state. And so the image that comes to my mind is that of fog being reflected in a mirror. So there can be the reflection of fog. It doesn't make the fog more discreet, but there can be a clarity of the reflection of it. In the same way, there can be a clarity of mindfulness of doubt. And, and the noting there could be very helpful as a way of uh, just supporting the non-identification with it. Oh, doubting mind, doubting mind. Another approach is when you feel like you're caught up in doubt a lot, and just hard to do even this. Um, if you come back to the body, sit in any way, there is a body, you feel the breath, you do a sweeping, in a moment of direct connection with the body, which is almost always possible if we remember, there's no doubt. You know, because the object is clear and there's connection and we're mindful in the present. And so we've just, we've just uh, clarified that whole mind state in the, in the clarity of awareness of that object. You know, and, and staying with the body until... Um, you know, that the energy, the momentum of the doubt uh, disappears. So, so there are all these ways. In a, in a bigger, sort of in a bigger time frame, if there are recurring doubts about the practice, you know, about the teachings, uh, then I think at some point or another, to speak to somebody, to study, to to really clarify, okay, well, what's, what's really the question here, and is there a way of understanding it? So there's place for that as well. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Sarah, wait. You're next in the queue. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something a couple of nights ago about how somewhere in the Abhidhamma you thought it said something about um, phenomena fading from the mind before it fades from the body. Can you either say more about that or tell me how I could find, or both, how I could find that? Okay, as, as I've said repeatedly, <laughs> I'm not an Abhidhamma expert, but somewhere in this mix... You know, I've heard it or read it or... Munindra was an Abhidhamma scholar, you know, and so a lot of his teachings was expressed that way, so whatever I've absorbed, a lot was just from his teaching. Um, so somewhere it says, and I don't know whether this is meant to be an exact statement or a little metaphorical, uh, but, he said, but it said, you know, the mind, is, the mind is arising and passing 17 trillion times up like that. Now, I don't know how, who counted it, <laughs> but maybe the Buddha had the ability to. And it said, so the mind is changing very, very rapidly, the arising and passing. And that's why I like that, uh, 
little teaching about the attoseconds. Because, I mean, the Buddha was in that ballpark in terms of seeing how quickly things are changing in the mind. And that it said that the physical elements are changing, arising and passing at a less rapid pace. 14 trillion times a second. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what that number is. but So that, that was just the, the way I understood it. Um, if you wanted to explore, uh, there is a, a, a reasonably accessible book on the Abhidhamma, at least parts of it, it's Bhikkhu Bodhi's, uh, what is it called, the Compendium of Abhidhamma? Comprehensive Manual of Abhidhamma. Uh, it, it's, some of it is, is very accessible and very interesting descriptions of the different mental factors and how they function. There's a lot on different states of consciousness. Some is more technical than others, but you might find you know, more information there. It can be downloaded as a PDF. <laughs> um, my questions were sort of related to earlier ones. The first one was going to be to request that you and Analio teach together again. <laughs> and for a month. Um, <laughs> so... Um, there's that. And then the second one um, was about restlessness. I think I've just had this new, um, pretty painful awareness of how much restlessness... It made a lot of sense in my life, uh, in terms mm -hmm. of what's happening in my life, that there was to see this. But it's been really powerful. And when I'm concentrated, it, things mellow out really fast and, it's, and, and mm -hmm. wonderful. But what I'm seeing is... If I'm not there, there's so much restlessness. So if there's anything you can talk about, especially being in the world and with the practice, that would be great. <laughs> it's just, it amazes me how my mind has something to say about everything. <laughs> 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 maybe right, it may be wrong, but it's... <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe it's 40 years of, you know, engaging in these dialogues. But it's actually related to the uh, question about doubt. And the image that I think could be helpful, especially since you're an artist, uh, just imagine your mind as a Jackson Pollock painting. But you put a frame around it, right? When you, go, when you go to the museum and you see those paintings, there's a frame around it. So there's all this, as you know. You know this <laughs> but it's framed. And so we can actually have a stillness in observing all the activity. Right? And that's really what we want to do with restlessness. Just put a frame around that whole experience oh, this is restlessness, and then be open to the feeling of it within the frame. Right? So you have a stability in being mindful of the restlessness. Without the frame, then it just seems to spill all over the place. Dealing with the inner narrator, um, become very sensitive in, in this retreat. How, whenever I engage with thoughting, it proliferates into something else. Um, you know, the, the the gibberish stuff is, is uh, interestingly enough, or thought future and past. When they come up, I'm usually becoming aware after they start, and when you when I become aware of it, if I just am with it, just not even note it, just mm -hmm. be with it, the sunshine of that seems to dissipate it. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's the, like the Dharma coach, where you're aware from the very beginning of the statement that something is being said, 
that's somewhat significant. And yet, if one engages with that, then it's like Mars there waiting for his fencing match, and it's parry thrust, parry thrust. If you could comment a little bit on that, and then also on stable mind states in meditation, whether you know, the, there's states that there's very little, if any, thoughting going on, and they may be of different character. They, they, they may be um, just awareness, or they may be equanimity, or, or the merit of staying with those for protracted periods of time. Because after a while, it can almost seem like the mind starts saying, well, this ought to be boring by now, although it might not be particularly. It's just that it's horribly stable. Okay. okay. <laughs> Uh, with regard to the first question, uh, it's interesting because Dharma thoughts, the Dharma coach, those kinds of thoughts are incredibly seductive. You know, we get pulled into them because they're about the Dharma. And there could be some use to them, you know, and especially for the first two and a half minutes. <laughs> uh, and so, because, because often just our intuition of how to adjust the practice or what's happening, our intuition is, it's like that beautiful uh, teaching from Ajahn Mahabhava, you know, at the moment when, when his mind was in this amazingly radiant state and then that Dharma voice came up, you know, as, as long as there's a nowhere anywhere, this is an agent of rebirth. So that was like, a Dharma thought coming. So what I would suggest is, it's kind of a two-fold strategy. One is practicing recognizing the pattern of Dharma thoughts, Dharma coach, you know, and you could, you could even use that note as you become aware of those thoughts, oh, this Dharma coach. And then just checking in quite close to the beginning, and then repeatedly, is this useful? Is it useful? Is it helpful? Because sometimes it is. Sometimes it's really helping us balance our practice. But sometimes we become, in asking that question, we become aware, oh yeah, I've had this thought 18 different times already. It's not helpful anymore. And, and just recognizing that is a way of disengaging. Uh, yeah, so there, there is a use for it and a help for a certain time. Uh, in terms of the stable mind states, you know, it's the wholesome, presuming they're wholesome, uh, like equanimity or concentration. I think th there are periods in practice where we can abide in these wholesome states for long periods of time. Uh, you know, at different stages of practice, in some stages it's very difficult to sit still, and at other stages it's really easy. You know, people sit for hours and hours at a time, and it's not, it's not efforting at all. It's just that there's kind of a very smooth flow of energy, the strong momentum of the particular mind state and of the mindfulness. Uh, so I think you simply want to check uh, check in a couple of ways as it's going on. One is, um, are you being mindful of the fact that it's there, mindful of it, or you're just kind of, you know, fall, falling into it without mindfulness. And for that, just occasional noting could be helpful. You know, oh, equanimity, equanimity. Just, just, just the way you're checking, yeah, am I being mindful of this? You know, as an arising state. Uh, so that there's not an unknowing identification with it. You follow? The other check, I think, would be, this is something Sado Tejaniya speaks about a lot. Right? He uses kind of the teaching of 
just we should, we should frequently check the attitude in our mind about what's happening. And so with these long, stable states, you might just also, well, what's the attitude in the mind? Meaning, you know, is there some grasping? Is there some clinging? Is there liking? Is there enjoying? So all of that is to be noticed. All of those things are, are simply to be noticed. Right? So, so you're bringing a little bit of investigative energy periodically. Uh, and then let it, let it unfold as it does. It's a little more cumbersome, but at times what I would do would be uh, with uh, the um, awakening factors, um, I was really mesmerized by them. And, and I'd like balance them sort of in my mm -hmm. hand and then go through them and see whether they were balanced in that state. Mm -hmm so that I'd know that I was being mindful, yeah, yeah. that there was energy, that I wasn't too joyful, that mm -hmm. whatever, and then just continue. Yeah, uh, that okay. sounds great. Again, as, as has been emphasized throughout this retreat, it's really exploring. You know, just, just I mean, that's a good example of it. You, you just, you're looking, you're testing it out, you're seeing what's happening. Keeping in mind that the bottom line of practice, the, the bottom line reference point, abiding, independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So that's always, whenever you're not sure of whether you're on the right track or not, clinging or not clinging. It's really a binary system. <laughs> <laughs> clinging? I'm not clinging. So that simplifies things. It's just a just a comment or another reference for the the Abhidhamma question. Question. There's um. A book by a student of Pau Aksayada, uh, a nun named Sister Susila. I don't remember the name of the book, but if you if you googled Susila Abhidhamma, that's also available to download by PDF. S U S I L A Susila, and it's very accessible. And then there's also a, an older book by Nina Van Gorkum. That's a Pali Text Society publication. I think it's called Abhidhamma in Daily Life. Yeah. That's also available online. Yeah. Thanks, Oren. I, yeah. I, I haven't read it yet. I have Cecilia's uh, book, and I've heard that it's really good. So, yeah. Okay. Hopefully this is a sign of investigation and not restless mind. But I had a follow-up. And that was when, a lot of times when the restless mind is happening, it's very hard to get that sense of space. So I was just wondering if you could offer any suggestions, the frame, and then to connect with the sense of space. The frame is the recognition the naming of the state. So it's like the backing up a bit from being lost in it. And then, oh, this is restlessness. Right? So, so the frame is really the recognition, the perception that this is restlessness. It's very interesting. Again, this is, this is kind of from the Abhidhamma side. Uh, when it talks about the causes conditions for mindfulness to arise, it lists two things, at least in this particular context. Uh, one is mindfulness itself, which means that each moment, of, each moment that we're mindful actually supports the arising of the next moment of mindfulness, and we can experience that in terms of, and you may have had this experience, when there's a certain buildup of momentum of mindfulness and it just seems to be happening by itself. You know, so mindfulness is creating mindfulness. But the other condition for mindfulness 
and I, this the part that I found really interesting, is perception. That, that is, when we clearly recognize what the object is, that becomes a support for being mindful of it. If we don't clearly recognize what the object is, then it's harder to be mindful of it. And that's why, whether we're using the, the technique or tool of noting or not, that's just an expression of recognition, but it's the quality of recognition. That's like the frame. Oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. Then we come face to face with it and we can actually be mindful and investigate. Okay, maybe last question. Could you follow up with an example of, say, poor quality of uh, the examination or identifying versus a good quality? I mean, seeing something more clearly, more accurately versus not? Um, well, I can give you one example. Uh, actually, I can give you lots of examples. Just one or two. The mind is really fun. <laughs> okay, so this is a little personal story. When we started the center, for the first 13 years, I lived in the center, which was great, and you know, just being part of the community. And but when I turned around 40, I don't know some enough. <laughs> Enough community. <laughs> I just, I, I just would like some space. <laughs> so through some miracle, some Dharma miracle, a very generous yogi offered the money to build a house. So because I didn't have anything, so it was just like amazing. So we built the house, which is next door, and Sharon and I. Kind of a duplex, and she lives on one side, I live on the other. And that's another whole story, like three years of obsessive design work. <laughs> but <laughs> that aside, so I moved in, the house was finally built, I moved in, I started with a month long self retreat. You know, it was, so I was just kind of alone and you might have seen from the it, it's really a very nice house. You know, and compared to just living in a single room, it was substantial. You know, spacious, comfortable, uh, not extravagant, but quite different. <laughs> but my mind on that retreat was just going through. I just moved into the house. I was in it alone, Sharon wasn't there at the time, on her side. And I went through this whole, oh, Dharma teachers shouldn't be living in such a nice house. <laughs> this is not right. I should be living in a hut in the woods. <laughs> I think I'll move out of the house and give it to the staff. <laughs> I, so I, I was, and it was tormented. I, I mean, I was really emotionally... <laughs> And at a certain point, I just started investigating what's going on here. <laughs> you know, and I was looking at my mind state because at first I thought it was shame and I don't know, things like that. But when I looked more carefully, I saw that it was embarrassment. I was kind of a feeling of embarrassment about living in a nice place. As soon as I clearly recognized, oh, this is embarrassment. Well, that's okay. I'd much rather feel embarrassment than move out of the house. <laughs> but it took, until I saw clearly what it was, I was entangled. You know? So that, again, that's one example of a lot and sometimes we have to search a little bit. 
you know, it's not clear what we're feeling or what we're experiencing. But if there's a sense of struggle or unease or it means we haven't yet either recognized it clearly or come to a place of acceptance of it. Because struggle, whenever we're struggling in the practice, it means only one thing. It means something is arising that we haven't accepted. Because if we accepted it, we wouldn't be struggling. And so rather than see struggle as a problem, take it as feedback. So whenever you feel that sense of struggle in the practice, let that be the feedback. Step back and see, okay, what's happening that I'm not open to? It might be unpleasant sensations in the body. It might be restlessness in the mind. It could be certain emotions, you know, that we're uncomfortable with. So it's that investigation and clear recognition. Oh, it's this. And through that clear recognition, we can become accepting and in the acceptance, letting go. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Just before we kind of come to a little conclusion here, I just want to ask you, of the people who left books to be signed, uh, who haven't yet collected them, is there anybody who's leaving before lunch? Okay, so I'll do it right after we finish, and within 15 or 20 minutes, you can pick them up. Okay, so, yeah. Uh, before Ayananda Bodhi has very graciously offered uh, to kind of bring the retreat to closure with a little metta and the refuge precept sharing of merit, but before that, my esteemed colleagues <laughs> um, like to say a couple of things. So it's been an interesting role to sit here for these two weeks in silence, practicing with you. Um, but it's been actually a delight to have the opportunity to receive these teachings, both from Joseph and Analeo, to hang out with my good friends, Temple and Joseph. We've had a great time behind the scenes. And to support your practice, really. I've, I've, it's been a delight in all kinds of ways. And uh, two weeks is a good chunk of time to be in a practice space. And I'm sure you remember when we all arrived here, some of us maybe live here, but we arrived at the center. It seemed like this part of the world was still frozen in the grip of winter. They were ice fishing on Gaston Pond. And gradually, you know, the snow has receded, the ground has revealed itself, and this morning as I drove by Gaston Pond, it was almost ice-free. So it just struck me it's a little bit of a Simile, analogy, metaphor, <laughs> what it is for how we arrive on retreat. You know, sometimes a little frozen, tight, stressed, um, agitated from our busy lives, not fully feeling what we're feeling. And over the time, the warmth of this practice slowly thaws that part of ourselves through the warmth of the kindness, the metta, the continual invitation to be present. So my wish is for you as you go back out into the world that you can take that warmth and that kindness and that that establishment of mindfulness through the body, in the heart, really can be a friend, a support, and even a refuge for you as you go out into the world. So blessings to you all as you travel. Travel safely. See you again on the Dhamma path. And also... <laughs> I'd also like to share that um, it really has been special to be here and to be with so many experienced practitioners um, receiving teachings on this level. Um, I can already tell just by the quality of what's happened here that this will stand out for a long time, a lot to reflect upon, and um, very inspired by your practice and the teachings here. <clears throat> it's funny, on a little bit of a personal note, it was actually 25 years ago that I took my first nine-day retreat here. 
And 25 years ago, I was in a closing circle, and when the, the mic came to me, my first words out was, um, why does anybody do this twice? <laughs> Let alone for three months. <laughs> I was really shocked at how, uh, how painful and amazing and overwhelming and clarifying and all those beautiful things. Um, and I made a vow to myself never to do it again. <laughs> I said, Temple, you love, you have a good sense of adventure, but um, please, <laughs> please, don't do this twice. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the honesty was, inex was inescapable. And trying many, many things, I uh, just think it was so incredibly honest. So I did it twice. <laughs> and luckily uh, have stayed with it, even though at times the path is so challenging, but uh, the clarity and the reward of it is um, immeasurable. So uh, glad to be on the path with you all. I'm really glad to have spent this time with you. So, uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. So Joseph asked if I would just lead a little metta meditation and uh, offer the five precepts. And uh, Matsumit was a little bit reluctant because I've been so enjoying being down there as a yogi. <laughs> but here we go. And I'd like to just have a go at uh, leading um, metta meditation that Venerable Analio taught us. So that was the first time I've practiced it, so I'm a little bit cheeky to get up here and try and lead it, but I will do that anyway, because I found it very beautiful. <clears throat> so we're just coming into the body, feeling a body awareness. And bringing to mind someone or some creature that brings that sense of metta. Could be a little cat, or a dog, or a creature of the forest. Or it could even be a, a babbling brook. So whatever brings that sense of of metta. And where the wanting and not wanting falls away, there's no room for it. Because your mind is warmed and gladdened by this image. And experiencing your mind like a, a lamp that's radiating. But around it is a curtain. And you open 
the front part of the curtain in front of you and you let the light of that lamp shine out. Just let the rays spread out naturally. You don't have to make them go a long way. You don't have to worry about whether it's really bright or gentle. Just naturally letting this light of metta shine out, radiate without boundaries in front of you. pulling back the curtain to your right, just letting that light shine out in front and to the right, spreading its warmth and gentle brightness. Pulling that curtain round a bit further so the light can shine behind you. So it's shining out in three directions. And pulling that curtain all the way round so the light also shines out to your left. So it's shining all around, radiating, spreading its warmth and light. The light of metta. And letting the same radiance shine above, above your head. And down below you. So it's shining in all directions. above, below, around and everywhere and to all as to myself. It's being equally shared in every direction with all beings. Just knowing that this quality of mind, if we remember, it's accessible. When we're not overwhelmed with the hindrances and we remember maybe to bring that sweet character into the mind that opens it up. It's very simple. And letting go of this 
radiant metta, letting go of any identification, any attachment, any wish for it to last forever, knowing it as impermanent. We come back to the body sitting here. body and mind. opportunity to take the refuges and the five precepts now. I don't know whether you have the sh- same sheet as I do because I got mine at the last minute, but uh, if your sheet has, does your, sh- does your sheet have eight precepts on it? Eight. So if it does then the, the, the third precept is actually different from what is written here, unless you want to keep celibacy. In which case you can just take it as it's written here. But in the five precepts, normally the third precept is the um, refraining from sexual misconduct. So I'll chant differently to what is written here, and just to repeat what I chant. And we can uh, begin together with uh, paying homage to the Buddha and taking the three refuges. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Bhutang Saranangachami Tamang Saranangachami Sankang Saranangachami Dutiyampi Bhutang Saranangachami Dutiyampi tamang saranang gachami Dutiyampi sankang saranang gachami Tatiyampi putang saranang gachami Tatiyampi tamang saranang gachami Tatiyampi sankang saranang gachami Anati pata veramani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living beings. Let's do it in English too. Adinadana veramani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking what is not given. Kame sumi chachara veramani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musawada veramani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from false speech. Sura meraya maja pamadatana veramani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicants which cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. Idang me silang maga palanyanasa pachayohotu. May this virtue help bring about knowledge of the path and its fruit. It is a great support. So just as the last couple of minutes, I'd just like to, that we bring to mind any wholesome energy, any merit, punya, 
that has been dedicated, uh, generated through this through our practice on this retreat. So, uh, you know, as we practice, as we, it's not only when we get the insight, but also when we're struggling, we're developing this wholesome quality, good energy, punya. So, bringing to mind, to heart, the the merits of our practice over these two weeks or over our life and just really bring it to heart letting it be felt not being shy to enjoy rejoice in fully take in the the good energy of our practice letting it fill our hearts and minds sharing in a similar way that we were spreading metta sharing in every direction with all beings indiscriminately those we can see those we can't see those who we love those who we fear or despise those who we don't know those who are living in wholesome ways, unwholesome ways, sharing generously the punya, the merits of our practice for the benefit of all beings, for the liberation of all beings. I don't have a bell. There's one now. Thank you. This marks the end of the retreat, (laughs) but not the end of the practice. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.